So for everyone listening, um, my name is Hannah Frisch, and I am with the Ecolink team. And a part of our goals as an organization this year is we wanted to interview some of our partners and individuals who have made an impact on our Ecolink team. And we want to make an effort to bring awareness to the causes they support and the work they do. And back in April, we had the opportunity to visit Burnsville, North Carolina, to go to the Earth to Sky Park. So I'd like to take this opportunity that we had at Earth to Sky Park to introduce to you Blair Belt with Earth to Sky Park and we'd love to know about your position and what you do with the park for everybody listening. Hi, um, thanks for having me. Um, I am the Earth to Sky Park coordinator. I run the planetarium and our um, field trips. We have tours that go around the park and then I also run the aquaponics lab. Could you explain a little bit what aquaponics is? Because I know that when I got there, you, you had to explain it to us because I didn't even know what that was at first. Yeah, so aquaponics is not a new form of farming, but um, it is a very scientific way of farming. Um, aquaponics is the method of growing food without any soil. So we use uh, four, at, at our lab, we use four, uh, 500 gallon fish tanks to house four different species of fish we keep. And then um, the fish waste goes into some bioreactors, which cleans the water, and that water is then transferred over to some floats that hold um, hundreds and hundreds of plants. Currently, we're growing buttercrunch lettuce and um, green leaf basil. So I would love you to kind of give us a brief history of how the Earth to Sky Park came to be and its evolution over time. Yeah, so in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, the, the location where the Earth to Sky Park currently sits was a mica mine. And all throughout our region, um, this area is filled with mines, but the, it was one of the larger mica mines, and they um, mined it for oh, who knows how long exactly. Um, but eventually the larger pieces of mica um, came out of the mountain. What was left was mostly uh, not good for, for mining. And so it wasn't gonna bring a profit. So they turned the land over to the county. And um, what do you do with a giant hole? Well, you fill it up. So the county decided that it would be a great place for a landfill. And um, it was used for a little over 20 years. And um, in the early 90s, it came to capacity and they capped it and they tapped it for methane. And um, eventually the two, the two counties uh, had a flare station which burned off the excess amount of methane. And the county thought, well, we could do something with this for the greater good. So a company or an organization, nonprofit organization called the Energy Exchange came to be. And they taught traditional Appalachian craft like pottery and glass blowing and horticulture. Um, they had an aquaponics um, set up as well. And they did classes out at the Energy Exchange. And all of the Energy Exchange, all of the um, parts to that moving project were powered by the methane coming from the landfill. All of the buildings, all of the heat, all of the power came from the methane. And that project was supposed to last 10 years or so. It ended up lasting 12. In the 12th year, it became too filled with sediment and the energy was no longer viable. So the campus closed down 
And at the time, Mayland Community College sat on the board of directors and said, hey, we can we can continue this mission in some form. Um, let us rent the space and we can host some classes out there. And um, a few years later, we had an amateur astronomer um, on our staff at the college and he would go out to the park and stargaze and this organization called the International Dark Sky Association was relatively new at the time. And he said, we could become a dark sky place. We're incredibly dark out here. So we took a three-year mission to um, go through the application process and become an international dark sky place. We became number 20th in the world. There's now 148 of those locations. And that was back in 2004. Um, shortly after that, we decided that uh, this beautiful dark sky place needed an observatory. And the funds were gathered for... Um, an observatory that the roof rolls all the way off, so you have 360 degree views. And we now house the largest public access um, telescope in the Southeast. And we were North Carolina's first international dark sky place, which is really cool. But the, uh, we quickly learned that we had to close 60% of the time because of uh, weather. So about 60% of the time we're having cloud coverage or rain or fog. And so we were having to close down. And um, from that knowledge was born the need of a planetarium, which brings me to uh, what we're about to open at the end of June. Uh, we'll be opening the Glenn and Carol Arthur Planetarium, um, which is a, a 60 seat, um, 360 degree uh, view of, Anything, anything that we uh, would like to project onto the screen. So deep, deep space objects, um, the depths of our ocean into our forest, into our human body. It allows us to bring a STEM education to our mountain that has never been here before. Uh, for the people who are listening that they can't see, could you explain a little bit about the bee project on the outside? But I, I would love for you to talk about the bees because I thought that was so fascinating. Yeah, so the exterior of our building is currently being painted by a world famous muralist. His name is Matt Willie, and he is the founder of the Good of the Hive project. What that mission is, is to paint 50,000 bees, which is the number of bees in a healthy hive around the globe. So right now he's sitting at somewhere between 8,000 and 9,000 bees in his project. Um, so he's, he'll be painting for a while, but on the exterior of our planetarium, we're housing a fairly large swarm. And this mural is sort of a pivotal point for him and his mission, he said, um, as he has never done a, a mural speaking to dark skies and the importance that our pollinators need the dark sky just as people do. And so we've got a large swarm that's heading inside the planetarium. And when you're walking inside the space, you'll get to go into the hive and see the queen and her attendants. When you leave the planetarium, you'll see this big, beautiful swarm on the outside of the building with the dark sky behind it. And the bees, as they wrap around the building, speak larger to our nighttime pollinators. You see one bee reaching out in that Michelangelo to, to God moment of uh, <laughs> over to a rosy maple moth. It's so cute. Um, and uh, then the rosy maple moth like fades out to some of our other nighttime pollinators, a lot of our moths and beetles. Um, and then it also speaks to our fireflies in the region. We've got 
an endangered species firefly called the blue ghost firefly that lives in um, southern Appalachia and then specifically in west, west North Carolina and east, east Tennessee. And um, we're incredibly lucky to house this firefly, uh, but it's, it's endangered and it's very rare to find because uh, it lives in undisturbed leaf litter. It only lives in the, the top three inches of the earth. And if that is destroyed, um, their habit, uh, you know, their habitats are destroyed. The female doesn't actually have any wings. Um, and she only migrates about a foot from where she's born. And she uh, lives underground for the first two years. And then once she emerges from the ground, she mates with the male. And then they live for two more weeks and then die. So it's a, a really special species of firefly. It doesn't blink. It stays this blue, eerie blue, white lit. It's the craziest thing. So the mural will be speaking on our nighttime pollinators as well as our blue ghost firefly. And the fireflies will disappear up into the sky and become constellations. It's a really beautiful, beautiful piece. And we're really happy to be hosting Matt and his, his mission. That was really, really amazing to see. It was so intricate and detailed and well put together. I was just in awe the whole time we were there of that mural but transitioning over so obviously our team got to do a visit with you and the rest of the team at the earth to sky park i'd kind of like you to go into a little bit about your experience with us and what you had us do yeah so the ecolink team came up for a part of their earth day project and um we had a a nice long chat um about the ecolink mission and what they're doing on their end to um, try to be a better, a better company, a better steward of the earth and, and um, you know, a, a better partner in, you know, environmentalism. It was really awesome as an environmental park to see other companies out in the world doing good and doing good for the earth. But what we were, what we had the, the team do is one of our field trip activities. So we sat down and we took paper that had been shredded that would have gone to the landfill that we have saved out um, to make recycled seed paper and recycled seed bombs. And we took the seed bombs, pressed seeds into this recycled paper mesh. We threw them out into our pollinator meadow. So we let each member of the Ecolink team seed a section of our garden um, for our pollinators of tomorrow. The next project that we did was um, talk a little on our rockets. And um, the Ecolink team had the opportunity to um, go in a little friendly competition and launch some rockets. Because what is uh, a trip to the Earth to Sky Park without a little friendly <laughs> rocket competition? And then uh, we went on a short tour around the park. And we, were, uh, we, we had the opportunity, the, the weather allowed us to go up the old mining, mica mining road and take a, a quick little hike up to the top of the park. And we saw some bird nests and we have a, a abandoned eagle nest on the property. We had the opportunity to talk about some flora and fauna as well. 
Very much so. And all that was very exciting and very fulfilling. I don't care if it was a kid's field trip activity. I am a little kid <laughs> at heart. So it was very exciting and fun to do that. And I know that during our time together up at the observatory the night before, we kind of discussed a little bit about how dark skies are becoming an issue with light pollution. So okay. I kind of like to give you a platform and a space to kind of talk about that and how people can advocate for dark skies in their own community. Because I know here in St. Louis, after coming back, from North Carolina, my own neighborhood does not cover their lampposts. So my neighborhood is currently light polluting. So I would like to know how people can advocate for that in their own communities. Yeah, so something that has become, um, you know, a bigger issue in our world is our access to our dark skies. And as a person, it's our, our natural heritage to be able to see um, all the st stars in our sky um, you know, if you talk about um, heritage, that is what people have done for millennia is we go out we, or, you know, we eat dinner as a community and then we sit outside under the stars and we talk about our history. We pass down oral lineages. We talk about folklore. And currently with the way that our modern society lives, scientists are saying that about one in six children have an access to a clear dark sky. So that's saying five kids out of every six will never get to see things like the Milky Way or some of our deeper space objects we can see with our naked eye, like the Andromeda Galaxy or the Pleiades Cluster. And that's a big concern. I guess there's a multitude of, of reasons why we would want to, to protect our dark sky. Um, the World Health Organization has come out saying that artificial exposure to artificial light in 24-hour doses and long periods of time disrupts your natural circadian rhythm, which then also, depending on your, your human biology, disrupt making things like melatonin, which inevitably leads to things like cancer. So it's a, it's a health risk as well, but it's also an issue for our wildlife. So like I was talking about the, the blue ghost firefly, it's a species of firefly that needs extremely dark spaces in order to mate, in order to live. The, the male has a little spotlight and he hovers one to two feet above the ground and he's looking for this female who also has a tiny faint lamp on her body, but again, she's wingless. So he's looking all through the leaves for this tiny little glow worm looking female who they'll mate with and continue on their species. But they only have two weeks to live, two weeks to mate. And so, and at the end of their mating season, males will die off and females will live on. And um, they, they need the extremely dark spaces. If, for example, they happen to fall upon a full moon during this cycle, it is likely that they won't produce in such great numbers for the next season and the population will dwindle. But it's not just our insects, it's also our river creatures. So there's an endangered species called the Appalachian elk toe mussel. And if it is not dark enough, the elk toe mussel crawls down up to five inches where there's a second crustacean that will feed on it. If it doesn't have enough oxygen in the water, it will go up. So then birds will come down and eat the, eat the elk, elk toe mussel. So it lives in this just exactly one little part, one section of the river, just low enough to protect it from the birds and high enough to protect it from these deeper crustaceans that will feed on it. 
And um, if the if it's exposed to artificial light, it will bury down. And um, that is a, a greater issue because the elk toe mussel is a river cleaner. It takes in pollutants and cleans cleans the river water. So as you can see, it's not just people that are affected by light pollution. It's our it's our everything. It's our bird populations. It's our our insect populations and our are affecting our riverways as well. So now that people have that greater awareness of the darker skies and how they can make a change and take into the thoughts of that it's more than just them, it's the whole ecosystem as a whole, how can people come visit you guys and how can they go about visiting dark skies or locating designated dark skies? What's the best way to go about all that? Yeah, so there's currently 148 international dark sky claimed places. That number is adding every single week. Um, the, the last time I checked, there were about 400 new locations in application. The way that you can find any of us in the International Dark Sky System is if you go to darkskies.org, that should take you to the International Dark Sky um, Association's website. And if you go underneath their where to find and their places tab, you can find the closest dark sky to you, or if you don't have a close dark sky to you, you can, can find a location to travel to. I know that a lot of my friends, I brought awareness to them after visiting you guys. I was, I was so shocked when I came home and the way I started looking at things differently after recognizing that dark skies was actually a thing. Visiting you guys kind of gave me a new awareness because we had the uh, lunar eclipse uh, about yes. two weeks ago. And yes. surprisingly here in the city, we were still able to see it perfectly, even with all the lights of the city lighting up the sky that night. So I just think that it's great what you guys are doing. And it was so eye-opening and such a fun time. And I am so excited for everything you guys have going on for you that's coming up and opening up. You guys have so much going for you. And, and I thank you for coming and talking with me today about your causes and your support to other people. It's so moving. Hey, thank you so much for having us on today. And, um, you know, we do hope to see you out at the, the park. And uh, for the folks out there listening, if, you, if you've got any questions, please come see us at the park. Reach out to us at the park. We'd love to talk about dark skies and our animals and our insects and being a steward of the earth. We cannot wait. And the Ecolink team cannot wait to come back again. We've already been talking about it. So we're very excited to make out another trip eventually.